0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mason Brown. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Rio. And I'm uh, excited to uh, be here with you guys this morning. Uh, and it's not just because uh, I had uh, many cups of coffees, uh, but or because I slept well last night. Thankfully, my, my son, he slept through the entire night. So that was very gracious of him to, to do that for us. But I'm excited uh, to be here with you guys this morning. Because as we open up God's word, uh, we come to one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures. And it's the story uh, of Naaman. And some of you, you might be wondering, like, like, Nay, who? Like, who is this story about? Well, his name is Naaman. And one of the reasons why I love this passage is because as we'll see today, this story, even though it takes place in the Old Testament, meaning it occurs before the life, and the death, and the burial, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It speaks of Jesus, and what he freely offers to each and every one of us who take hold of him in faith. Uh, But before we jump into our text, I want to set the scene for you. Uh, If you've been here with us for for the past couple of weeks, you then know that we've been working our way through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. And recently, we've been looking at the life and the ministry of Elisha. And if you take a step back for a moment from the text, you actually see that Elisha's ministry is presented to us in three distinct stages. Uh, the first stage took place in chapter 2 of 2nd Kings, uh, where we're not just introduced to Elisha but where we see through through divine confirmation that he is, in fact, the the true successor to the great prophet Elijah, not to be confused with Elisha. Uh, The the second stage takes place in chapters 3 and 4, where we uh, see uh, Elisha uh, become the instrument of God's mercy exclusively to the people of God. If you recall last week, in, in in a time of famine, uh, we saw how the Lord, through Elisha, uh, provided for a company of prophets. And, and today, uh, in chapter 5, we come to the third stage, where we see Elisha is not just the servant of the God of Israel, but he is the servant of the God of the whole earth. In this chapter, it becomes abundantly clear that the God of the Bible isn't just the God of Israel, but he is a God And personalize this. He's a God who is interested in and concerned for the people of the whole earth. And that includes you. In fact, that is the point uh, that Jesus himself makes in Luke chapter 4 when he mentions Naaman, this man that we're going to be looking at this morning. And so as we jump into our text, uh, the the question that's going to be kind of presented to us is, well, what drives Naaman this incredibly unlikely person, this person who, as we'll see today, is, is seen as successful according to our world standards to start uh, to seek the God of the Bible. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, this is what it says. And Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, and victory over whom, by the way, that's important, Israel. And then he goes on to say, and he, Naaman, was a mighty man of valor. And so right away when we encounter Naaman within this story, it would seem, at least from this first verse or this first section, it would seem as if everything was pretty much going his way. I mean, his name alone in the Hebrew, which means delightful or beautiful, that even suggests to us that he was undoubtedly a good-looking guy. And so, so not only did he have the good looks, but he had obtained and achieved many of the things that our world says, look, if you acquire this, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll feel secure and comfortable no matter what may happen within your life. Within this verse, we see that he had connections and prestige. He was the, the commander of the far superior Syrian army. And he was honored not just by the king, but by everybody else. At this point in time, Israel, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, is, is not at its strongest. And so they were often raided by their nearby enemy, their nearby uh, neighbor, Syria. And this guy in particular, Naaman, he led the charge. And so he, at least in Syria, was the guy that everyone wanted to be like. He had connections, he had status, he had, he had fame. And secondly, within this passage, we see that he's described to us as a man of valor, which just essentially means that he was, he was brave and highly skilled. No matter how, how difficult the task was, he always got the job done. He was successful at everything that he did. And then lastly, as, as we'll see in a bit, he was a man of great wealth. And so Naaman, he had connections, He had prowess, he had money, three things which made him the consummate insider. However, despite all of his great accomplishments and his his abilities, and they had finally met their match, if we continue on within the passage, it says, but he was a leper. And that is a big but. Back in the day, leprosy could put you on the outside faster than anything else could. It was, this, it was this dreaded skin disease that not only stripped you of your strength, um, but it disfigured your physical body in such a way that your extremities would, would slowly deteriorate and fall off. But also on top of that, when people discovered that you had it, that you had leprosy, you were shunned to the outside, and you were completely ostracized from community because they were afraid of catching it as well. Leprosy was believed to be highly contagious, uh, and back then, since they didn't have a known cure or a remedy, there was a 100% death rate attached to it. And so even though Naaman was the ultimate insider, I mean, he had the connections, he had the prowess, he had the money, even though he was the ultimate insider, he was about to become the ultimate outsider. Leprosy was a sentence of banishment and death. And we don't know from the text, we don't know when or, or where he first saw that spot. But one day, he took off his armor, and there it was. And maybe at first glance, he, he kind of did a double take, and he was like, man, is that, is that really what it is? And, or maybe he, he scrubbed it a little bit harder to, to see if it would come off, but it was still there. Maybe he, he used his, his connections and his money to go to the top experts of the day and to see if they could help, but there was nothing that they could do. Maybe he thought, well, I'll just, I'll just cover it up and I'll pretend like it's not there. However, ultimately, that was just delaying the inevitable as that spot continued to grow. And so no matter what Naaman did or how hard he tried to get rid of that spot, it was still there which I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. You know, one thing that I've realized over time, especially as I've gotten a little bit older, is that regardless of how well our lives look like they're together on the outside, we all, including myself, like Naaman, have at least one area that we would rather just keep covered we all have at least one area of brokenness that we just yearn for it to be removed just so that we can feel whole again. And so let me ask you, what is your spot? What is that thing that as you lay down in bed at night, it keeps you up? In those moments of sobriety, what is that thing that when it exposes itself, it just feels in some sense, like a sentence of death. Maybe you, you've come up against a problem that you just can't resolve or an obstacle you feel powerless to overcome within your marriage or you've had a health setback or you've lost a loved one. Maybe it's a secret habit that you just can't break. And even though you, you see its insidious effects take root within your life, no matter how hard you try in your own strength, you just can't break it. Maybe it's a, a feeling of guilt from your past or present that every so often it just rears its ugly head. Maybe it's a a secret, a paralyzing fear that when it comes out, it just destroys you. Maybe it's a, a, a deep sense of unhappiness that is invisible to everyone else, but it is rotting you from the inside out. Maybe your spot is exclusion, and you desperately yearn to be a part of the inner ring like Naaman was before he had leprosy. And so what is your spot? What is that thing that feels in some sense like a sentence of death? And you know what's interesting is that in the Bible, as you as you survey it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a leprosy is often likened into sin. Which if you kind of take a step back for a second, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, just kind of work it through sin usually starts in small ways and then spreads it can usually it can be hidden at first but eventually our sin it shows itself and and sin like leprosy it deadens things and ultimately it affects our whole being does it not C.S. Lewis, uh, who was a professor at Oxford, uh, in one of his essays, The Inner Ring, which I encourage you to read it. It's a really great essay. But in his essay, The Inner Ring, he mentions that the reason why many of us crave uh, to be on the inside, to be um, in the in crowd like Naaman was before he had leprosy, or if you've ever seen the show or the play, uh, Hamilton, uh, which as an aside was amazing. Like, um, I loved it. Normally, my wife would have to give me a bag of gummy bears uh, to help me to uh, stay awake during the entirety of that show. Uh, but that was not the case with Hamilton. I'm a big fan. Um, so anyways, it was amazing. And nevertheless, uh, C.S. Lewis says, the reason why many of us crave to be a part of the inner ring, like Aaron Burr and Hamilton yearn to be a part of the room where it happens, Where important decisions were were being made is because instinctively, we all know that we are on the outside. And Lewis says that it all goes back to a little mysterious scene in the Garden of Eden where we see the first effect of Adam and Eve's sin, which is that they felt what? Naked. Naked. And so Lewis says, look, I don't, I don't care who you are or how much of you've accomplished or how many connections or money or prowess or whatever it might be. If for some odd reason you slept walked in here naked and you woke up, you would feel like you're on the outside. Everyone online is joining us like, man, I'm so thankful I'm home right now, right? You would feel like you're on the outside or better yet, you would run a run, run as fast as you can to get to the outside. I mean, I would probably pull a hamstring or two. Even though I haven't run in a long time, but that would be me. And, and so Lewis says, "Look, the ultimate spot on each and every one of our souls is sin. And, and, and the ring that we have been excluded from because of our sin is having a relationship with God. And so just like name and spot of leprosy, Lewis says that our soul has a spot, a disease. And like Naaman, it is terminal. Maybe you're, you're, you're joining us this morning or, or, and you've never really realized that before. You've never really thought about that. I mean, you open up God's word and, and scripture comes to us and it says, look, the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none not righteous, no, not one. We have all turned away from God and we have gone our own way. And because of that, death has spread to us all. And you hear things like that. You hear, you read verses like that, and you think, well, there, there has to be something that I can do. There, there has to be something that I can do to remove this spot of death. And so this morning, I, I want you to consider, what if all of the spots that we hide and we carry around and we are burdened by within this life, what if they were there to drive us to the only one who can make us whole. To the only one who can heal us, not just from the spots that we experience on a day-to-day basis, but who can heal us from the ultimate spot that has infected each and every one of us. Something to think about. And so, back to our text, what does Naaman do? I mean, what does he do in regard to his spot? I mean, he's freaking out. He's just realized he, he has this spot of leprosy. And so what does he do? Well we pick back up in our study in verse two it says Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And this little girl said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet, speaking of Elisha, who is in Samaria, and he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman went in and told the Lord his king. And thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And I want to stop right there for a moment because I want you to realize that Naaman is at such a point of desperation that one day this girl uh, from a country that he didn't have any respect for, I mean, he enslaved many of their inhabitants, and he certainly didn't have any respect for, for their God, offers a glimmer, glimmer of hope. He is so desperate in trying to heal this spot. He's he's realized that there are limits to what the things of this earth can and cannot do in regards to the things that we hide and we carry around. And he's so desperate that he is willing to grasp at any straw that he can. Can you relate to that? And so Naaman, he goes to the king of Syria and he says, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria, who obviously wants his chief commander healed, he sends him away. And now notice what Naaman brings with him and who he goes to. It says, And the king of Syria said, Go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Uh, which just no, know, knows equates to an enormous sum of money. Uh, the clothing, think more of like Oscar clothing, like not a knock on Target or Ross. Like I, I, I normally shop there, but think like extravagant clothing. That's, that's the clothing aspect of it. Okay. Just think enormous sums of money. So he brings this money with him. And so it says, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to, sent to you Naaman, my servant that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he's making a quarrel with me. Notice that even though this little girl told Naaman to go to the prophet, he immediately goes to the king instead. And the reason being is because Naaman thinks that Israel's religion, just like every other religion in the world back then and today, he thought that it was just an extension of its culture. And so he goes to the king thinking that the prophet must be employed by him. And this is why he brings the same three things that he had in Israel to the king of Syria. He brings his connections. I mean, he has a written cover letter from one king to another. He brings his money and a lot of it. And lastly, he brings his prowess. And I say that because as we'll see in a bit, Naaman expected to do some great thing in order to be healed. And so, and so Naaman, he, he gathers up all of the things that he had, he was known for, all of the things that he had, he had achieved and he had obtained within this life. And he goes to the top dog in Israel and he says, here are my credentials. Here's my money. And I'm coming in to get my what? My healing. He thinks that he can somehow secure God's blessing and healing by purchasing it, by by earning it. However, unfortunately, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is unlike any other God, for he is the one and true God. He's not a projection of culture. Rather, he sits in judgment of all cultures. And he's not just the God of Israel. Rather, he is the God of the world. And most importantly, he is not a God in your pocket. He can't be controlled by any man. You can't twist the arm of God. And so the king, in fear of an international incident, he he tears his robe since he realizes that they do not understand how the one and true God works. But in verse 8 it says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, I believe even perceived by the power of the Spirit that there is a greater purpose in Naaman's leprosy, he sent the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and all of the things that he had brought with him. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And now notice what happens next. In verse 10, it says, And now Elisha sent a messenger to him, Naaman, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And as you read that, right, just if we stopped right there, as you read that, you'd expect Naaman just to be ecstatic, right? I mean, this is what he's been yearning for. He's been yearning to to be healed, to be made whole. And so you'd expect, like he'd be like, Yes, man, I'm here, I'm in the right spot. However, that's not how he reacts. Naaman was not impressed with that statement. In fact, he was absolutely furious. If we continue on, it says, "'But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he, Elisha, the great prophet, would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place of the spot and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean?' And so he turned and he went away in a rage. And Naaman's servants who are watching all this unfold are are, are kind of like flabbergasted at Naaman's response. I mean, this is why they they came out to Elisha to be healed, to be cleansed. And so they quickly run after Naaman. Be like, dude, like, what, what are you doing? And in verse 13, it says, But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And I don't want to be that guy, but the ESV in particular uh, struggles in, in translating this verse. In the Hebrew, it literally says, he has asked you to do no great thing. And so some translations translate this verse by saying, my father, if the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Wash and be clean. And so here's what I think is going on. Naaman feels insulted. If the prophet had personally come out and, 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 said if, and waved his hand and said, if you achieve this great thing that I'm about to tell you to do, you will then have your healing. And so, for example, if Elisha had, had come out to Naaman and said, bring me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. I mean, for real. I, I, I think if Elisha came out and said that to Naaman, Naaman would have been like, yes. I'm in. I'm a man of valor. Yes, a a few fingers and toes have fallen off because of my leprosy, but I can do this. And he would have gone off, and he would have done whatever the great prophet told him to do, and he would have come back, and he would have said, now have I earned my healing? And then Elisha would have said yes, and then he would have waved his hand over that spot, and he would have been healed. You see, that is the kind of salvation, the, the kind of healing, that this man, Naaman, could have understood it was one that you could earn that you could achieve however here comes elisha or better yet his his messenger and all he says is go and wash and you shall be clean and naaman is like man are you kidding me look at who i am look at all the things i've brought with me look at all the things i have obtained and achieved and you just want me to dip seven times in this filthy river, which by the way, pales in comparison to the great rivers of Damascus, in order to be healed? I mean, come on Elisha, look at who I am. Any fool can go down to that river and wash. Any child, any a weakling, any immoral person can go down to that river and wash. Any prostitute can go down and wash in that river. Does your does your God not have any standards? Are you really saying that there is no difference between them and me? And in short, Elisha's is saying yes. Elisha is trying to teach Naaman as well as us that we must shift our way of thinking that we can, we can somehow earn God's blessing because of who we are and because of what we have done to simply trusting and resting in God's free grace. Which, if we're, if we're honest, is somewhat offensive to our 21st century year. Because like Naaman, we don't want to owe anyone, right? If we're really being honest, we don't want to owe anyone. We want to be able to at least contribute something to our salvation, something to our healing. However, as you turn to the New Testament, you see that the cross of Jesus destroys that notion and our pride. And since it reminds us that God's verdict on all of our lives was death, in fact, the only thing that we do, in fact, contribute to our salvation is our sin. You see, the great deed that Naaman, in his folly, thought he could do in order to secure his blessing, in order to secure his salvation, Jesus has done for us. And we we see a picture of that within this passage from a character who entered and exited so quickly that she's hardly even noticed. In verse 2, we read about a servant girl of Naaman's wife, who was what? She was captured by the Syrian army. And so at best, that meant that like her, her family um, had been taken and sold off into captivity. At worst, that meant that they had been killed before her very eyes. But nevertheless, this little girl's life, it had been changed forever. And who is responsible for it? When you get down to it, who is responsible for it? Naaman. Yet how does this little suffering servant respond when she learns that Naaman, her master, had been struck down with leprosy? Does she rub her hands with glee and say, ha, leprosy serves you right? Does she celebrate every time Naaman loses a a finger or toe? Does she she withhold this life-saving information that she has been endowed with in order to make him pay for what he has done? Is that how she responds? No. Listen to her words. She says, If only my master would see the prophet. There is sympathy and there's concern in those words. This little girl makes the costly sacrifice and she bears the debt that she could have easily made him bear. I mean, she is holding this man's life in her hands and she forgives Naaman and trusting God to be the judge of all and she ultimately becomes the vehicle for his healing and salvation. And here we have a glimpse of what Jesus would ultimately do not just for Naaman but for us as well. You see... Jesus is the ultimate suffering servant. Like this little girl, Jesus suffered and absorbed the debt, not for his own sins, but someone else's. However, unlike her, Jesus entered into that suffering voluntarily. She had no control over present circumstances. She had been stripped from her parents. However, Jesus, he, he willingly left his father in heaven. He entered into our humanity to absorb the debt that he did not have to bear. And in the same way that this little girl ultimately pointed Naaman to a river, Jesus spilled his blood to become the river that would wash away our sins. The great deed that Naaman thought he could do in order to secure his blessing was too great for him to pay, and so somebody else had to do it. Somebody else had to go through the fire and water, In Jesus Christ, he, he didn't go through a physical fire and water, but he went through an ocean of divine justice and wrath. Since God's standards are so high, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into our humanity to take your brokenness, your shame, your spot of sin upon himself so that you would not have to bear it. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, which is death, and he rose from the grave so that through faith in him, You can not only be forgiven and healed from the spot of sin that has infected each and every one of us, but so that you could be clothed in his righteousness and be reunited with your Father in heaven and receive the gift of life, life eternal. This is what Jesus has done for us. And this is why Naaman can just wash one of my favorite songs um, is an old hymn. It's called R- The The Rock of Ages, and we sing it some sometime here at Rio, or sometimes here at Rio. And I love the stanza that says the following. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is what Elisha is trying to teach Naaman as well as us this morning. Salvation and blessing cannot be achieved but received. It is by grace, a free grace, that our spots are healed. And that includes all of our physical spots that we hide and we we carry around and we are burdened by within this life. But most importantly, that includes the ultimate spot of sin that has infected each and every one of us. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2.8 and 9 even says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so what does Naaman do? I mean, he's already kind of stormed off. He, he's upset. What does Naaman do? Well, after listening to his servants, he swallows his pride. He surrenders all the things that he had been looking to, to try to secure his healing, to try to secure his blessing. He surrenders those things and he takes that step of faith and he goes down to the river to wash. In verse 14, it says, so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean which, by the way, is also emblematic of what happens to us when we go down to the river and we wash in what Jesus freely offers to each and every one of us who take hold of him in faith. We, too, are made clean. That's why Paul, in in 2 Corinthians 5, purposely states that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The, The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In Christ, our spot of sin and death itself no longer have a hold upon our lives. Why? Because our sins have been washed away. We've been clothed in his righteousness. And we have been reunited with our Father in heaven who, by the way, will one day usher in a new kingdom where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, where the physical spots that we all, we all have them, that we hide and carry around and are burdened by within this life where those will be removed forever. For he is making all things new. And so as we close, notice what Naaman does next. As he comes out of this river healed, it says, then he returned to the man of God, and he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. And he said, and I love this, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. As Naaman comes out of the river healed, you would expect, as you're reading this passage, you'd expect for Naaman to be like, man, I, he would, you'd expect for him to mention something about his leprosy. He, you, you'd expect for him to give high fives like, oh man, thanks so much. Like, but that's not what happens. He doesn't even mention his leprosy. Instead, as he comes out of the river, the first thing out of his mouth is this incredible confession of faith. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel for he alone is the one and true God. Naaman's spot of death becomes his portal to life. It is through this spot that God drives Naaman to himself to reveal to him that he is a God of grace who desperately yearns to be in a relationship with him and to heal him, not just from the ultimate spot of sin that has infected, but to one day usher in a new kingdom where he can be in community with him. And that is true for us as well. And so as we close, I, I want to leave you with three questions. First, what is your spot? Which I think is many, easy for many of us to decipher. I know it's easy for me. But what is your spot? What is that thing that when it exposes itself like Naaman, that it feels in some sense like a sentence of death? And Secondly, what if God's purpose within that spot is to get you to ask yourself a bigger question. Like Naaman, what if it was there to drive you to the only one who can heal you and to make you whole? What if God was his own greatest reward? He was the pearl of great price. He was the treasure hidden in the field whose uh, value was so great that in light of him, you would let everything else go and not even mention it. And then lastly, like Naaman, Will you go down to the river and let God's free grace wash over you as you surrender not just the physical spots, but the ultimate spot of sin that has infected each and every one of us? Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. We are thankful that you um, are not just a God who speaks in and through your word, but we are thankful, Father, that you are a God of grace who, who yearns, Father, to be in a relationship with us, God, we thank you, Father, that you invite us into your presence. We thank you, Father, that it is by your grace alone that we are healed, not just of the ultimate spot of sin, but we thank you, Father, for the great promise that you've given to us, that one day there will be a new kingdom where we will no longer be burdened by all these different physical spots that we hide and we carry around. For, Lord, we are thankful that you are making all things new. And so, God, we pray, Father, that you, maybe even for the first time, that you would give us... Uh, by the power of your spirit, just the ability to, to come before you and to take that step of faith and to go down to the river and wash, Father, in what you freely offer to each and every one of us. In your name we pray, amen.